0: So you know how most kids' first word is dada? And how disappointing that is to mama? Because dentals, duh, are easier than labials, ma? Well, imagine my wife's disappointment when one of my kids, and I'm not going to tell you which one, their first word was by self. (laughs) As in... I'll do it by myself. Now, for anyone who's raised a child, you know there's not a truer expression of human nature than that first word, myself. Though we are born the most dependent of all the creatures on the planet, nevertheless, from the moment we're born, we are striving with every fiber of our being towards independence. And once achieved, we guard it fiercely. We, and I say this quite confidently, I mean, I haven't asked every one of you, but I say this quite confidently. We don't like needing help. We actually like giving help quite a bit, but we don't like needing help. I mean, just look at our benevolence fund. You guys love giving to it. I think it is just a sheer statement of fact that you hate receiving from it, which is why the balance is always so large and we have so much trouble getting it out. Here's the thing, though. We all need help. We are not self-sufficient. None of us are self-sufficient. We, we need to obtain knowledge, and so we have teachers. We lack skills or expertise, so we've got to go out and hire contractors or workmen of various kinds. We can't control the future, and so we buy insurance and hire investment advisors. We lack strength, and so we call on our friends. We all need help, and we avail ourselves of help all the time, and, and frankly... There is no shame in needing those kinds of help that I, that I just described. Maybe that's why we ask for it and, and receive it. But, but what if the help that we really need isn't for these discrete tasks or projects or this discrete bit of knowledge that I don't have? What if the help that we really, really need more than anything else is help with life Itself. This summer we are in the Psalms of Ascent, a series of 15 psalms written by various authors at various times. We don't even know who wrote all of them or when all of them were written. But at some point they all get collected for use as God's people journey to Jerusalem for one of the three annual festivals. It's, it's actually quite an apt image for our own journey toward the heavenly Jerusalem. Like any journey, though, there are dangers and evils that threaten us along the way. And so the question for all of us is on this journey through life to heaven. Where will you turn for help? Well, To answer that question, turn with me to Psalm 121, Psalm 121. It's a very short psalm, so I'm going to read all of it right here at the start. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. Okay, our Psalm, this very short Psalm, just eight verses, breaks into four equal stanzas, and they almost work like, like stair steps, each one pushing the idea of the previous stanza upward and onward. And, and they do that by using a series of repeated words. So we move from, from God as our Creator, to God as our Protector, and finally and ultimately to God as our Blessing. That's not the only structural thing going on in the psalm, even though there are four equal stanzas. It also divides out in the sense that in the first stanza, our our author asks a question and then answers it. But, But then in the following three stanzas, the voice changes. It's not that initial question asker who's talking anymore. Someone else is talking to him, explaining to him what his answer means. At the very center of the psalm is the phrase, the Lord protects you. You see that right there at the beginning of verse five. The Lord protects you. And indeed, the word protect is repeated six times in these mere eight verses. So it's not really hard to figure out what the main idea of this psalm is. Right here it is. Trust the Lord and he will protect you all the way to heaven. Trust the Lord, and He will protect you all the way to heaven. We're going to look at this psalm in those two parts. Uh, the, the first stanza, in which the speaker raises a question and answers it himself, and then the, the second three together, in which other voices are explaining what that answer means. We're going to look first at trust the Lord, and then second at your protector. All right, so first, trust the Lord not idols. Trust the Lord, not idols. Look again at verse one. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. All right. Our, our pilgrim has left Meshach and Kedar, as we saw last week. But somewhere along the way in this journey, he realizes he needs help. He lifts his eyes toward the mountains of Israel and he wonders, where will my help come from? Now, we're not told why he needs help. On a long journey in the Middle East, there are going to be all sorts of reasons you might need help. Right. Treacherous roads, blazing heat during the day, freezing nights bandits along the way, all of these and more could have prompted his question, where's my help going to come from, and his need for help. But but we're not told specifically, and, I, and honestly that helps us, right? Left unspecified, it invites us in. His question becomes our question. His need becomes our need. And so this is, One of the questions that you need to be asking yourself as we work through this psalm, where does your help for life come from? Where does it come from? Well, as his gaze lifts towards the mountains, what would he have seen? Well, as Portlanders, we know what he would have seen, right? Majestic beauty. Awe and grandeur. I mean, it still takes my breath away every time I'm driving around and all of a sudden, Mount Hood looms into view. Every time I still tell my kids, look, look, Mount Hood. And they are so tired of Adrian and I saying that. (laughs) We've lived here 11 years already, Dad. We've seen it. I know, but, but do you ever tire of seeing it? It is so inspiring. It literally takes your breath away. But what if... When our pilgrim looked up and gazed at the mountains, his gaze was not so much inspiring as it was provoking. I mean, it seems here that, that this view of the mountains prompt his question. They don't answer it. Maybe what's going on is is the mountains, and and therefore amongst those mountains, Mount Zion, which is his goal. Maybe at this point he sees they are still a long way off, and he's discouraged. He feels weary, and he knows that he's going to need help if he's going to make it to the end of the journey. And and I'm sure that many of us feel the same way after after this last year and more of pandemic and rioting, and just general upheaval and unsettledness. It it feels like the destination of heaven is a long way off, and you just feel weary. Maybe that's what's going on here. I think, though, even more likely, or even together with that feeling of weariness and discouragement, More likely, what he sees in addition to majestic peaks is smoke curling toward heaven from those mountain peaks. It would have been the smoke of many different altars and shrines. The the high places where Israel typically offered its sacrifices to the local gods. When when our pilgrim looked toward the mountains, somewhere in there, yes, was Mount Zion, his goal. But at the exact same time, he was also confronted with all of his alternatives. Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech, All of these gods with their altars in the high places and the smoke from those altars rising to heaven, all of those gods made promises to him. They promised to make his crops grow. They promised to make his animals healthy. They promised to make his wife fertile. In other words, they promised to help him with life. They promised to help him get through life well. If only he would sacrifice to them. If only he would join in worshiping them. Now the psalmist's answer, our pilgrim's answer in verse two is unequivocal. His help does not come from the mountains with their idols. His help doesn't even come from earthly Mount Zion. His help comes from beyond the mountains. From the one who made the mountains, the maker. Of heaven and earth. Now I wonder if you can relate to our pilgrim at this point. We all need help with life. We know that, even though we don't like to admit it. We need help with life. And frankly, there is no shame in needing help. But the temptation is always to look to the mountains and the idols they represented rather than to the Lord. Now our idols have more familiar names these days than the idols of ancient Israel. We we call them wealth, success, our own ability and competency, sex, entertainment. But even though Our idols have more familiar names. We look to them for the same reason that I think ancient Israel looked to the idols of Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech. Because of our pride, we feel shame in needing help with life. We we think we should be independent. We think we should be self-sufficient. We don't want to ask for help. And here's where the idols come in. The idols promise to help without wounding your pride. They promise to help without provoking your sense of shame. How do they do that? Well, when we turn to the idols of our wealth or success or or our own abilities for help, we can then turn around and tell ourselves, I did it myself. My wealth, my success, my ability. When we turn to the idols of our relationships or our popularity or the esteem that we get from others, we can turn around and tell ourselves that, oh, see how much people like me? I am worthy. My, my, my worth comes from who I am. Again, I, I did it myself. And I can see it in the way other people think of me. When we turn to the idols of pleasure or entertainment, or substances to to numb our anxiety. Again, we're allowed to turn and say to ourselves, Yeah, I I deserved this. My life has been really hard. And so I deserve this break. I deserve this numbing of the pain. This is what idols do. They promise you help. But they, at the same time, promise not to disturb your own sense of independence. Your own sense of self-sufficiency. They promise not to wound your pride or provoke your shame. And they're lying to you. Idols never deliver. Oh, they make grand promises, but they never come through on them. Nothing in this life can finally guarantee this life. Money is lost. And it makes us more insecure when we try to make sure we don't lose any of it. Success, success fame, fleeting. There'll always be somebody more successful. Whatever you, whatever fame you achieve, will soon be eclipsed by someone else. I, I just uh, this this last week launched my oldest son out to his first job. I just got back from Chicago selling him in. He's doing great, guys. He's go try to describe. He's doing really good. Anyway, so he and I were talking at the end of his first week at work, and he was already aware of of a of a truth. That I've talked to my kids about a lot, and I learned it from my own father-in-law. And that is, man, in the business world, you can be super successful, but the day you leave is the day you're forgotten. Right? Business is always and only about what have you done for me lately. And retirement means you're not doing anything for me anymore. I'm glad he recognizes that early. It will change the way he approaches his career. It would change the way you approach yours. You see, all of that is fleeting and easily lost. Pleasure, whether it's through licit means, like all the world of entertainment we're given, or illicit means, like fornication or adultery or substances. And all of that, it's just a distraction. It solves nothing. Because it doesn't even last. And so what happens? Trusting in our idols, whether they were ancient ones or modern, actually then leaves us feeling more ashamed than when we started. Ashamed for our failure to achieve what they promised, because it's always our fault. That's what the idols tell us. You just didn't try hard enough. You just didn't do it enough. So ashamed for our failure to achieve and then And then ashamed for having been deceived into trusting in them in the first place. Shame upon shame. Friends, if we're going to find help in this life, for this life, we're going to have to look beyond this life. A man who is drowning in the ocean cannot lift himself up out of the ocean. He needs someone that is not in the ocean, who is on firm ground, to pull him out. We are at sea in this imminent world. And unless there is help beyond this imminent world, unless there is help for us in the transcendent, we will not find any help. But here's the good news. The good news is that there is help to be found. This is not merely an imminent world. There is a transcendent creator who made this world, who stands outside and beyond this world, and who is there to help us. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. One commentator just simply noted, help comes from the creator not from the creation. John Calvin noted when he was commenting on this psalm, when people shall have long wearied themselves in hunting after remedies, now in one quarter, now in another, they will at length find from experience that there is no assured help but in God alone. Friend, are you listening to the lesson of your own experience. It's only when we come to an end of ourselves that we turn to the Lord. And find the help that we need. It's, it's only when we have come to an end of ourselves. That, that the mountains with their false promises. And their false idols. Can no longer deceive us. Because we've tested them. And by experience we've learned. They fail. They fail us every time. It's only when we come to an end of ourselves. And recognize that our need for help. That only the Lord can give. Is not reason for for shame that will then turn to him. The maker of heaven and earth made you and he made you to need help and to find help in him alone. There is no shame in being what you were made to be. And that is a creature who needs and finds help in his creator. Now, how exactly does God then give us this help that we so desperately need? Well, that's actually what the next three stanzas answer. How God actually helps us. It all boils down to this. When you trust the Lord, second... He becomes your protector. When you trust the Lord, he becomes your protector. Look with me in verse three. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. Now, all of a sudden, you'll, you'll notice that the voice changes. We were in the first person. Where does my help come from? And now all of a sudden we're in the second person. Somebody is talking to this guy. Now Who's talking to him? Is he talking to himself? Maybe. Maybe he's preaching to himself. Or or maybe at this moment, some of his traveling companions who are on this journey with him begin to speak to him. We don't know. The psalm doesn't give us enough information to say. But either way, whether he's preaching to himself or his friends are preaching to him, what we get here is a quick three-point sermon on how the Lord protects those who trust him. And first, we're told the Lord will protect you from slipping. The Lord will protect you from slipping. Verse three is is almost a, a prayer. In the in the CSB, which I'm reading from, it says, He will not allow your foot to slip, your protector will not slumber. But literally, we could we could translate it, May He not allow your foot to slip. May your protector not slumber. But, th- but then quickly, in verse 4, uh, that, that, that prayer is followed by the assurance that the protector of Israel will not slumber or sleep. He, he's, like a, he's like a good shepherd watching out for his flock, or, or he, he's like a, a watchman on the city walls. He's constantly looking out for his people. Unlike human shepherds, Unlike human guards, the Lord never gets sleepy. He never needs a nap. He never takes a break. This is in stark contrast with with Baal. And it's one of the reasons why I think the idols are in view in the mountains above. Because Baal was notorious for falling asleep. And he needed to be awakened. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel telling the prophets of Baal to shout louder. Perhaps he's sleeping. Or, or maybe he's gone off to relieve himself and you need to call him back. Oh, but not our God. The Lord's watchful care over us is unceasing. And that care, that watchful care is devoted to, to one thing. It's devoted to keeping our feet from slipping in this life. You know, young people don't worry about slipping and falling. It's an old person's concern. And now that I've crossed over 50 and am approaching 60, I understand that concern more and more. But I was gratified in a kind of schadenfreude kind of way to notice that when my family hiked the Grand Canyon this, uh, this spring break, even the young, fit, athletic members of my family were quite worried about slipping and falling because the trail was icy at times and the drop-offs were sheer. And that kind of slip even the young and healthy don't recover from easily. The slip-in view here is not about skinned knees or broken bones. Life itself is precarious, isn't it? Prosperity, health, safety, relationships, all of it can come crashing down in an instant, it feels. But, But you know, Throughout the Old Testament, this image of your foot slipping or the Lord keeping your foot from slipping is not just talking about the the kinds of disasters that can overtake us in life. It's actually a metaphor for falling irretrievably under God's judgment. Now, that judgment might be temporal. Temporal. In the loss of earthly prosperity, but mainly in the Old Testament, it's a spiritual fall. The the unexpected fall into God's judgment that sin and unbelief bring. As the Lord told Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay in time their foot. That is the ungodly, the wicked. Their foot will slip. For their day of disaster is near and their doom is coming quickly. I think that's what's in his mind as he says, he will not allow your foot to slip. For those who trust in the Lord, he promises to protect us from slipping, from from falling finally into and under his judgment. How does the Lord do this? Well, well we're, we're told right there in, in verses 3 and 4, we're, through, through this image of the, the protector who does not slumber, the protector who does not sleep, the Lord is the good shepherd to his people. He watches over his sheep. And he did that finally and ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, who came and said, I am the good shepherd. In the person of Jesus Christ, God became man. And as the good shepherd, the shepherd came and laid down his life for his sheep. He protected us from the judgment of God by taking the judgment of God on himself. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. And if you're not a believer, this is what we want you to to understand. We're we're asking you to to turn away from, from trusting in these other things that will never protect you from the thing that you need protection from most. And that is God's judgment. And instead, trust in Christ who died for you. If you will repent of your sins and put your faith in him, he took your judgment for you to protect you. From the judgment that you deserve, I'd love to talk to you more about this. Uh, Find me after the service. Talk to the person that you came with after the service about what it would look like to trust in God to protect you from the judgment of God. But but you know this this is the good news of the gospel. But the good news doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with his death for us. Jesus Christ got up from the dead. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and now from the throne of heaven, he continues to be our good shepherd. Leading us by his word and by his spirit, leading us into good paths, calling us back when we are tempted to stray away from him, picking us up when we fall. And though our Redeemer, though our Savior, Jesus Christ, is fully human, make no mistake, he is also fully divine. Our Redeemer, our Protector, does not slumber or sleep, but ever lives to intercede for us, watching over us as his children, watching out for us as his people. You know, if you're a believer, I just want to remind you that the, the grand mark of a Christian, the thing that, that is the distinguishing mark of someone who is a believer in Christ, the mark of a Christian is that though you fall into sin, maybe grievous sin, maybe severe sin, the Christian perseveres in faith. Repentance may be delayed. It may be delayed long. But it will ultimately come for the true believer. But this is the reason it comes. This is the reason that that for the true believer, even a grievous fall into sin is not a final fall into sin. Christ protects his people. Having died for us, he will not let us finally or fully fall away from him. He's, he's not up there ceaselessly watching you, waiting for the opportunity to say, ah, I gotcha. I knew you weren't for real. I knew you weren't of my own. You just fell into that sin again. I got nothing more to do with you. No. Believer, the Lord Jesus is on the throne and he is watching over you even in those worst moments of your life. And what is he saying? He's saying, I've got you. Not gotcha, but I've got you. And I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you slip and fall finally and fully. So the Lord protects us by keeping us from slipping. But second, he protects us from fainting along the way by sheltering us. Look at verses five and six. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. Verses 5 and 6 recall that the blazing heat and the freezing nights of Israel in the wilderness as they made their way from Egypt to the Promised Land, or the blazing days and freezing nights of a pilgrim on his way to Jerusalem. But you, you'll remember, if you if you go back and you read through Deuteronomy, Moses is constantly reminding the Israelites that, hey, yes, we've been through this wilderness, but God led us all the way. He provided food and water for us in a barren land. So here now, the pilgrim's friends are, are reminding him that the Lord is right by him every step of the way. I'm reminded of Psalm 91. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. I think it's easy sometimes to, to fall into the false belief that since God is so busy running the universe and he's so busy saving sinners, that, that now that I'm a Christian, he doesn't, he doesn't really have time or interest to pay attention to the details and troubles of my daily life. Or, or, or maybe you've fallen into the false way of thinking that, that God will take care of you so long as you're good. So long as you don't mess up or make a mistake. Friends, neither of those things are true. God didn't save Israel from Egypt and then say to them, all right, now the promised land is over there. Good luck finding it. I'll meet you there if you make it. It's not what God did. No, he was with them every step of the way. The pillar of cloud a shade for them by day, the pillar of fire, warmth for them by night. He sheltered them. He fed them. He protected them. And believer, if you are trusting in Christ, he is doing the same thing for you today. He will keep you from fainting. He will shelter you so that your faith is not overwhelmed. Come what may. Now, this does not mean that trials and tribulations won't come into your life. They will. The wilderness was still the wilderness for ancient Israel. Trials and difficulties are trials and difficulties. They're they're real. But for the believer, so is the shelter and protection that God gives his people. John Calvin said, although God's people may be subject in common with others to the miseries of human life, yet his shadow is always at their side to shield them from thereby receiving any harm. So, Christian, are you abiding in the shelter that is Jesus Christ? That that shelter is right by your side. Are you taking up residence in it? Are you living in that shelter that, that Jesus gives us? He, he extends that shelter to us through through so many different means, things that we call the the means of grace, but not least of those I think is the local church it, it's here in the fellowship of the saints in, in the preaching of god 's word in the celebration of Baptism and the Lord's Supper, that the gospel is made real to us again and again and again. It's here that we live out the dynamic that we see in this psalm where one of us asks, where is my hope coming from? It's coming from the Lord. And then somebody else walks up to us and says, right, let me remind you of the truth of the gospel. So we preach the gospel to each other and that becomes shelter for us even as we preach the gospel to ourselves. In John's vision of those rescued from the great tribulation in Revelation 7, John actually alludes to this psalm, Psalm 121. We're, we're told there in Revelation 7 that those who've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them. There's the allusion to 121. Nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe, every, wipe away every tear from their eyes. And you'll recall, and this is why I think this is so important, you'll recall as we study through Revelation that that is not merely a vision of the future. It is also telling us something very real about the present. For those who trust him, the Lord protects you from slipping. He protects you from from fainting, from from giving up and being overwhelmed along the way by by sheltering you. But third, and finally, he protects you from failing. From failing to reach the goal. And he does that by keeping you from all harm. Verse 7. Literally, all evil. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forevermore. Verses seven and eight are the climax of the psalm. We've reached the top step in this stair step of stanzas. And the promise, let's be clear on this, the promise is not that a believer will never experience harm in this life. The promise is that God will keep him, protect him, from the evil that is in that harm. He will preserve our life through it all. And, and, and the word there for life doesn't just mean your, your physical mortal life. It, it's a much more expansive view. It has in view your, your soul, your eternal life and well-being. Isn't this the great truth that we spent the spring considering in the book of Revelation? Yes, believers may go through the tribulation. They they will go through the tribulation, but it will not ultimately harm them. One of my favorite series of novels was the is the historical novels by Patrick O'Brien known as the Aubrey-Maturin series, and one of the it's it's a, a, a set of novels set. During the Napoleonic Wars, they are seafaring novels. They're all of these amazing sea battles. And it's rather extraordinary. He's incredibly realistic. How much is extraordinary how much damage these ships can take without sinking? I mean, their mask can be totally blown over or shattered to splinters. There can be all sorts of cannonballs going through their hulls. Everything can be ripped to shreds. And yet so long As the damage is above the waterline, the boat continues to float. I think it's an apt image for the life of a believer under the Lord's protection. We may come into all manner of trials and troubles, like a ship on a stormy sea or in a terrible battle. But just as all of the water in the ocean Cannot sink a ship unless it gets into the ship. So, all of those trials, all of those troubles, believer, they cannot sink our fellowship with the Lord. For the Lord promises to keep the evil of those trials and troubles from getting in us. That they are merely wounds and scars and damage above the water line. How does he do that? He does it by filling us with himself. The last line of the psalm is a reference to the blessing that Moses promised the people of Israel if they were faithful to the Lord. Let me just read it to you. It's from Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse three. Moses says, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country Your offspring will be blessed and your land's produce and the offspring of your livestock, including the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. Your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The blessing of the old covenant was that God would dwell in their midst, filling them with his presence. So long as they were faithful. Well, we know the story. Israel was not faithful. And God departed. He departed from the temple. He departed from the land. And the ship sank. Israel was not faithful. But Jesus, the true Israel, was faithful. The fullness of God dwells in him. And by faith, believer, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And the spirit of God dwells in us, filling us so fully that the evil that would do eternal harm to our souls simply cannot get in. Yeah, I know there's a little bit of water sloshing around down there in the bottom. There there is indwelling sin in us. But because of the work of Christ, not in any way such that it could fill us and cause the ship of faith to sink. The Lord protects us from all evil by giving us himself. And having given us himself. I ask with Paul, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Maybe that's where John got it. Revelation, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, says Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Did you catch that? Not any other created thing harms of this world are all but created things. That's all they are. The worst they can do is touch your, your, your mortal life, the, the part of the, the ship that's above the water line. But in Christ they cannot touch your eternal soul. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Friends, there is no shame in needing help. We were made to need help. Trust the Lord and he will protect you all the way to heaven. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and and consider what it is that you might be trusting in other than the Lord. And just confess that to him. And ask him to turn your eyes to him. Heavenly Father, we... Filled with pride, and we don't like to admit that we need help. And yet, of course, we need help. We need help to escape the, the judgment that we deserve. We, we, we need help to continue on each day anew through this life in faith rather than in unbelief. We we need help to not grow discouraged and weary, to faint along the way. Oh Lord, we pray that you would turn our eyes to you, that all of our hope would be in you. And we ask that you would be our shelter along the way, that you would abide with us and in us, filling us with yourself until you bring us safely to shore. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.